All right, it's at this point that I want to draw your attention. If you brought your Bible with you, wonderful thing. Always encourage that. Uh, Luke chapter 10 is the third book of the New Testament. So Matthew, Mark, Luke. We're going to read from Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 25. Um, if uh, you want to look at the overhead at this point too, you can uh, read it also on the overhead. As we are considering this morning, I think one of the more well-known uh, stories in uh, all of the New Testament, particularly stories that Jesus oftentimes told to illustrate a truth, and it's the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, um, for Pathway members here, but as well as visitors, I just want to say that we are coming to the end of our um, multi-month series on various scripture passages relating to Pathway's vision and core values. And we've kind of ended with our three-pronged vision of the need to pointing us upward, love Jesus. Secondly, love each other as Pathway members and visitors. That's inward. But then also, as uh, Elder uh, Tim brought out in the prayer, we have a calling from God, not as an addendum or an attachment to this ministry, but as the very center and identity of this ministry, to pray for and evangelize and exercise mercy ministry to those who are outside of the walls of this gym in a Pathway Christian Church, the people of Abbotsford. And we find a, a wonderful illustration of mercy ministry here in our passage this morning. So I want to draw your attention now, Luke chapter 10. Let's begin reading at verse 25. Um, kids, I want you to pay special attention to. This is a story that you can understand, and I'm going to state things simply during this sermon so that you can understand it as well. And during the sermon, I'm going to ask you a simple question that I want answered as well, okay? Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, how do you understand the law? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, that's the lawyer, the theologian, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Time for a story. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he was journeying, came to where he was and saw him and had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever, you, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, story's not real hard to understand. In fact, you don't have to be a Christian 
You don't have to be a part of a church. You don't have to have much knowledge of the Christian faith to understand this story. Now, you may not get all the spiritual particulars of the point that Jesus is making here, but you understand the story. And this is typical of Jesus in his ministry. He would oftentimes illustrate things by means of story. He was never such a profound philosopher that he spoke above the heads of people. But he spoke, he taught, and he illustrated truth by means of stories that that the person who is even absolutely new to the Christian faith or outside the Christian faith or the smallest of children can understand that story. It's one of the most well-known stories in all of the Bible and it is also something that has piqued the interest of various painters throughout history. I think of two in particular, both from Dutch background, although they were separated by a couple hundred years from each other, Rembrandt van Rijn and also Vincent van Gogh. And what I want to do is I want to show you these two paintings very briefly. The first one is actually an etching by Rembrandt, and the second one is a painting by van Gogh. And when you take a look at the paintings, the point is this, that what the painters did is they tried to portray this broken man, this victim who was beaten, and by way of extension, show that not only this man is beaten down and broken, but also the world in which we're living in. If you put up, there we go. Now, it's kind of hard to see what's going on here, but if you, if you look online, you look more closely, I want you to notice the brokenness. So here you have a man, there's the animal in which he was taken, and you see the man paying the innkeeper here. Take a look at the inn. It's beaten down, it's kind of broken, it's old, there are cracks in the wall. Something that you can't see too well is a woman in the middle of the picture toward the right side. And if you look closely at the painting or at the etching, you will see that she is rather oblivious to the significance of what is going on here, like the people of the world. Some they turn a blind eye but don't care what's happening before them in terms of mercy ministry or the need to show mercy. You have leaves that are falling off the tree, dead leaves that are falling and then in good Dutch, earthy fashion, you have a dog doing his business. Now, you may like, what's that all about? It's to illustrate the brokenness and the shatteredness of the world in which you are living. What Rembrandt was trying to do, probably, he's showing that the brokenness of this man is really a reflection of the brokenness and the fallenness of the world in that which we live. You know, the Bible tells us in the beginning that when sin entered into the world, what happened? What came forth from the ground? Thorns and thistles, and lives, people, people's lives were turned upside down. Now, very quickly, the second painting by Van Gogh. Now, this is a different style. It's the style of Van Gogh, and here you have, once again, you have a man on a beast of burden. He's the man who's the victim of assault and battery. He's being helped by this man. Now, I'm not going to provide a lot of painting analysis of this, but simply to say this. And this is very interesting that Van Gogh painted this painting of brokenness when he himself was broken in a mental asylum. This painting was done in 1890. It was the very year, sadly, that Van Gogh took his own life by putting a gun to his chest and taking a bullet. We don't need those pictures up there anymore. Brothers and sisters, I, want, I wanted you to see this visually, and then we're going to move on into the story, to remind us, to remind us together 
That though we may worship in comfort like a morning like this, outside there, in the rain and in the cold, there are people who are in need. And there are people also who come here in need. They may be economically in need. Or, like originally, like Shad or Jamie, maybe a bit spiritually in need. We are all in that way. And we are called, as Jesus says, to minister to such people, to bring the gospel to bear in their lives, not just in word, but also indeed. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And to the extent that you do it to the least of these, remember what he says? You do it unto me. Bear that in mind as we took a look at this passage revolving around true mercy ministry. Let's begin with a story. The story begins with a simple, simple question. In fact, it's it's a question that every one of us need to ask at least at some point in our lives. What must I do to inherit eternal life? If we assume that this life is not all that there is, but there's something beyond, then we have to ask ourselves, well, then how do I attain to the beyond? How do I do that? How do I attain eternal life? How How do I inherit that? I find dealing with people who would not even call themselves Christians, when I ask them what happens when you die, it's very interesting. Oftentimes, they'll use those two words, heaven or hell. They just have intuitively that sense that this life is not all that there is. So this man asked Jesus, and he's testing him, the Bible says. He's testing Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Testing Jesus, what kind of answer are you going to actually give me? Is it going to be an orthodox answer? And it's very interesting here that Jesus responds to this This question of this lawyer, this theologian who asked this question, Jesus responds not with a statement, but with a question of his own. Well, you're a theologian. What does your law tell you? How do you you read the law? How do you understand it? By the way, very quickly, that's a wonderful evangelistic technique. If you ever share the gospel with someone... You're going to get into this conversation with them at some point, and they may press you, and they're going to say, what about this and what about that, expecting you to give some kind of answer, some kind of statement. Oftentimes, what I will do is I will hear their question, think about it, and then address their question with a question of my own, which is basically, well, you brought up the question. What do you think? What do you think is the answer? Okay, that involves people. It draws them into a conversation. This is what Jesus is doing. He's drawing this man into a conversation. So what does the law say? And what does the man say? Remember, he's a theologian. He's a lawyer. Okay? So, he's no dummy. And he says, he's thinking in his mind because he knows the law. Fifth book of the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, it's known as the Shema. He says, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're we're not only to know this God, but we're to love him with the whole of our being. And then he adds this, which is not found in Deuteronomy, but elsewhere in the Old Testament that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. So love for God, love for neighbor. And we go, touche, you got it right, you got it right. But remember this, the theologian's heart's not right. It's kind of corrupt heart. You see, it's very easy to have correct theology, but your heart be in the wrong place. That was the case with this man. So he gives the right answer to Jesus, but then, but then he asks Jesus the question, um, okay, but who is, you know, Love for God, love for neighbor, right? That's the right answer. But okay, here's testing Jesus, but who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? What are you going to say? Rabbi, teacher, what are you going to say? 
The Bible says he's hoping to justify himself, to make himself appear that he is aligning himself with the very law that he quotes here. Like, yeah, I love God. I love my neighbor. What do you think, Rabbi? But, but who's the neighbor? Now, ask most Christians today who is their neighbor, and you're probably going to get a particular answer. Now, kids, I told you I was going to ask you a question. Here's a question. Who is your neighbor? Raise your hand if you know. Tell me. Who's your neighbor? Yes. Did you hear that? She says everyone. Now, this is what we call a child of the covenant. This is a child who grows up in a Christian family. But people who maybe didn't grow up in a Christian family who become part of the church over time realize that's the answer. Everybody is our neighbor. Ah, but you ask a conservative Jew that answer, at least during the days of Jesus, and what's the answer going to be? The answer is going to be, well, my neighbor is, well, I guess one like me, fellow Jew, fellow God lover, fellow law lover, fellow circumcised temple worshiper, you know? Uh, that's, that's my neighbor. That's my neighbor. Oh. Okay. Well, Time for a story, because Jesus is going to broaden this man. Because I want to submit to you that when Jesus hears that question from the man, Jesus, unlike us, we can't look into each other's hearts. Jesus can look into our hearts. And he did with this man. And you know what he sees? He sees three things. He sees a warped theology. And also what he sees, he sees a tribal mentality, like this, it's my peeps. These are the ones I love. And he sees ultimately this uh, constricted heart. You know, instead of the heart being like this, the heart's like this. And in knowing this in this man, Jesus is going to evangelize this man and tell him the truth by means of a story. So what is the story? All right, story goes like this. Now, kids, I want you to listen up because I'm going I'm to tell the story and make some points along the line. So you have this man in this passage. He's, we don't know his name. We, just don't know. I don't know his background or anything. Anyway, the main point is this man says Jesus is on a journey. He's on a trip, and he's going from a place called Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, that is about, that's about 40 kilometers, okay? So it's not too terrible long a distance, but it's, it's a decent walk. So let's say maybe half a day's walk, if you're walking at a decent clip, maybe. Anyway, it's a longer journey, and and by the way, when you dig a little bit into the, and you research this passage, you realize that it was known as the way of blood. That journey from, Jer uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho, 40 kilometers, the way of blood. And the reason why it was called the way of blood, kids, is because blood was oftentimes shed on that path. It was a dangerous place to walk, okay? Probably like some parts of Vancouver you don't want to walk in. Well, that was the case there. And you had, you had murderers and you had robbers. And sure enough, as this man is walking along, these robbers come upon him. We don't know how many. We don't know anything about their background. But they take on this man. And what they do is they beat the daylights out of him. And they leave him for half dead. And they take his clothing. You say, why would they take his clothes? You know, they probably took other things that he had, but clothes were very expensive at that time. You know, you and I just go to the clothing store and we buy, it's no big deal, but clothes were very expensive at that time. So, basically, this man experiences what we call a severe form of assault and battery. And kids, if you, if you, if you get beaten up like on this day, you can, go to, you can go to jail. 
for, if you're caught, you go for, for, for many years, okay? So this man is assaulted. And he's left, the Bible says, for dead. He's half dead. So it's a severe situation. Well, Jesus goes on to tell a story how here you have this man who's beaten. He's left by the side of the road. And you have two individuals who are walking along on this path. And it's very interesting. The Bible says that they saw the man, but they didn't do anything. Now, who are these individuals, these two individuals? It was a priest and a Levite. I'm not going to get into the whole of the background, but these are religious figures that were highly respected by the Jewish people. They're exactly, here's the point, they're exactly the kind of individuals that you would think would stop and actually help the guy. Now, it's very interesting, in this passage, you have three main characters. You have the Levite, and you have the priest, and you have this guy, a Samaritan. I'll get to the Samaritan later. All three of them, it's very interesting, the story makes note of this, all three of them, the text says, the story says, see the guy. They see the guy who's beaten up. So you have the priest and Levi, they see him, but they studiously avoid him. So it's like, it's like they're without excuse. They, they could say, you know, I was just walking along and the guy was by the side of the road. I never saw him. No, 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 no. They saw him, all right. But they chose not to help him. Theologians in basic theology will oftentimes talk about two kinds of sin. Sin of commission, maybe you've heard these terms, sin of commission and sin of omission. Sins, uh, sins uh, of commission are sins that you commit against someone else. So I want to submit to you that the priest and Levite were not, were not engaging in sins of commission. In other words, they didn't see the guy by the side of the road and say, um, okay, here's a stick, and then they beat him further. That would be a sin of commission. Sin of omission is seeing a need or seeing something that you should act on, but you don't. It's called sins of neglect. So they walk along, they see the guy, but they studiously avoid him. They keep moving on their way, they neglect. I want to pause here just a moment and have us think about this. You know, one of the, um, one of the things that sometimes happens in the church when it comes to mercy ministry and to those who are in need is that we, we neglect a need at hand, whether it be a big deed or, or, or a small need. The, 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 the issue in the church oftentimes is not abuse, but neglect. Although, although I have witnessed, actually, abuse in the church. I remember my first church in, uh, in the pastorate in, in Toronto, Ontario. I remember one Sunday, I was moving from the parsonage, which was next to the church, or the manse, and as I was walking to the church building to lead worship services, and as I was walking... I noticed something, I noticed, and I think he was a deacon at the time, he was, he was coming into church, he was in a pickup, and you have to realize that the parking lot, there, there's a busy street with a bus stop and a lot of high rises around, so it's a very busy place, and there was, a, there was a, a big parking lot, and what would happen is taxis and other vehicles would oftentimes go in that parking lot, they weren't supposed to, but they go in the parking lot and then they turn around and they go back on the busy road. Well, that one particular Sunday, I saw this deacon come in, and he was driving his pickup, and he saw a taxi come in, and he turned his pickup around, and as the taxi was coming in to the church parking lot to turn around, he took his pickup and put his nose right into the nose of that vehicle of the taxi, and I still see him today. He took his finger, and he went, like, get out. Sadly, just as he did that, as he was pointing his finger and saying, I could see the voice, I, could, I couldn't hear him, I could see his voice, like, get out. Just as he was doing that, there was a woman 
getting out of the taxi, was going to come to our church for the first time. Guess what? Never saw her again. Now, to be fair, I understand the frustration of the deacon. But, oh, we have to be so careful. Sometimes there's abuse in the church, but oftentimes it's neglect. So there's a reason why the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, for instance, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Whereas Jesus says to the Pharisees of his day, says, oh, you tithe dill, mint, and cumin. You tithe the smallest of things, but you neglect the weightier provisions of the law, namely justice, faithfulness, and mercy. These things, he says to the Pharisees, these things, justice, faithfulness, and mercy, you should be doing without neglecting these others. In other words, what Jesus is saying is we all have obligations as part of our spiritual life. Jesus doesn't say, well, you know what? Those obligations are not so important, you know, as long as you show justice, faithfulness, and mercy. No, no, he's saying both. Come to worship, you know, train your kids in the faith. Give your lives wholeheartedly to God, but at the same time, don't neglect really weighty matters such as justice and faithfulness and mercy. Don't get caught up so much in the small things that you miss the bigger picture. So with this, I want to move on to the Samaritan. With this, I want to encourage us, okay? When you see a need, whether people come into pathway or you see a need on the outside, which is what's going to be Love Abbotsford as we're defining that as leadership, may God give us the heart to not only see those needs but act upon those needs as the redeemed in Christ. You know what? You did that with Shad. And you did that with Jamie, and you just saw what happened here. And you know what my prayer is? Lord, don't stop there. Keep bringing them in. Bless your people here. Let us pastor each other, love on each other, but let's love those who come to us and love those who we see on the outside. And Lord, open up doors for us, and may we see more. May we see more of what we saw here this morning. Okay? Now, we need to keep moving on. Just one thing yet. You got the Samaritan. So you got the priest and Levite, they see the guy, they pass on the other side. Meanwhile, you got this guy who's a Samaritan. Now, kids, Samaritans, oh boy, you know, Samaritans were not highly looked upon by Jewish people. They would just, Samaritans. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole background why that is, but it's rooted in history and it's rooted in culture. And the Samaritans and the Jews always didn't get along well with each other, and the Jews and the Samaritans had different theologies, they had different doctrinal positions, which I'm not going to get into now, but the main thing that we need to know for the sake of time is that the Jews look down upon the Samaritans. Well, anyway, Jesus sets up this story for us to actually look down upon the Samaritan, but Jesus is involved in ironies. He loves twists and stories. So the Samaritan comes along, and the very one who we think would not help this man, oh, he's the one who helps this man. Again, the text says he sees the man then I want you to notice three things, how he handles this man. He handles him with his head, and his heart, and his hand. The Levite and the priest, they don't. The very ones who this Jewish lawyer thought had the correct theology didn't have the correct heart. And the very one who had the bad theology actually had the big heart. Of course, Christ calls us to have a good theology, to be right in our beliefs, but also right in our hearts as well. But sometimes you have people who who don't know their left hand from their right in terms of what they believe, but oh, they have the big heart. That's one of the ironies of life. So this man sees, this this, uh, Samaritan sees this man by the side of the road. 
So what does he do? He approaches him with head, heart, and hand. Head, he sees and he understands the situation. And then his heart. Now, I want you to notice in verse 33, it says, this man saw him and he had compassion. Now, the word compassion here is a special word in the original language. I've, I've noted it before. It's a funny-sounding word. It's splogsna. It means, um, literally, it means a compassion from the gut. From the gut. In other words, this is not, this is not fake or false piety or compassion. No, no, no. He feels it. He feels it. And that has to, may, may that be our prayer pathway too. Lord, give us a compassion, not based in duty, but true heartfelt compassion. So he, his, he has his head involved, his heart involved, but also his hand. In other words, he goes into action. Look at verse 33 and following. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, here's the heart, he had compassion, now here's the hand. He went to him, and notice everything he does here. He binds up his wounds. He poured oil and wine on those wounds. Then he set the man on his animal and brought him to an inn. And then once he took him to the inn, he continued to care for him. And then the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Wow. Wow. Two denarii. Now, in your Bible, if you have a Bible, you look in the footnotes, it's going to say two days' wages. And I've done a little research on this, and there's different ideas of what this would be worth today, but one commentator goes on to say, and historian says, you know what, uh, two denarii today would be like about um, uh, uh, two months in a hotel. It's like, like you finding a man like this, and you say, okay, you take him to a hotel after you care for him, he gets his feet on the ground, says, I'm going to pay, I'm going to pay, you're going to, you're going to go to the guy who's running the hotel and say, I want to pay for this guy two months here. And if you provide meals for him, it'd probably be then a few weeks. But my, my point is here is that this man is going beyond, the Samaritan is going beyond the call of duty. Okay? He is investing. He's investing in this man. Okay? This is what, and, and also, this is what we call holistic ministry. By, by holistic, I mean, he's, he's dealing with the whole guy. He's the whole man. He's, 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 he's ministering to this guy relationally, socially, um, economically, committing his money, physically. He's tending to his wounds. I mean, this is holistic ministry. This is a beautiful ministry. He is, listen to this, he's investing. He's investing in this man. I want to say something. I don't want you to forget this. When you get, and, and some of you experienced this, and maybe some of you haven't, but when you come into the life of a broken person, broken people require time. Shattered people require investment. Because when they're broken, oftentimes they're broken because of things that were done to them in their childhood. And a lot of people, sometimes they come into the church, and we have to pray for this as well. It's going to require work, but we have to pray for this, that people come, and they come in like a big ball of tangled yarn. And you know if you have a big ball of tangled yarn, you just don't take one strand, and it's going to go, you know, it comes about this far, and then it gets tangled, and then you've got to untangle that part, and then you do this again. And this is what it's like when you deal with people who are shattered, people who are broken. It requires time, and it requires effort. And care. 
you know. And I've seen this too, where, where, where people come in, you could tell they're, they're dealing with difficulties. And, I've, and I remember there was, a, there was a, a guy who came out of Baptist background and started coming to the church in the, in the, that I was pastoring in Linden. And he, he talked about sometimes the way he was treated. And he said this, and he was going through difficulty, and he said, he said people give you the honeymoon handshake. Right? You come in and they like, hey, how you doing? Yeah, oh, yeah, and you talk in a few minutes. Right, well, nice to meet you. And the people saying nice to meet you know that the guy's dealing with problems. Jesus calls us to go the, to, the, to the nth degree. And here's, here's and then I want to I end with two quotes here. But the, the thing is, is that, brothers and sisters, you need to remember that if God has worked in your heart and he has saved you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, that's an expression of his love for you. You didn't earn that. You didn't earn that. It was all of grace. And if God has shown grace to you, let us not neglect to show grace and invest in others. And Jesus goes on to say, do you know what? To the extent that you do that to them, always remember that guy or that gal that you talk to, when you look into their eyes, see me. See me. To the extent you do it to the least of these, you do it unto me. So Jesus tells this story and he, he says to the lawyer, okay, then who in the end, who in the end do you think is a good neighbor? It's like, you know, as we would say today, duh. Well, yeah, it was the guy who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy. He couldn't even mention the Samaritan's name. Ah, the Samaritan, right? No, he says the one, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, now you, as children of the king, saved by grace, do the same thing. It's a natural extension of your faith and your love for God. I want to end with two quotes, one from the Bible and one from a man named Francis Schaeffer. And both of them remind us of the need to identify with and invest in the broken. 1 John 3, 16 through 18, by this we know love. If Jesus laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk only, but also in deed and truth. That's why we have the Love Abbotsford ministry that we're continuing to put together, right? So that we may love not only in word, but also in deed and truth. And then also, finally, this from a man named Francis Schaeffer who ministered to many broken people in his life. He said, Christians need to convey that we are in this mess together. We must really live among the hurting and show solidarity with those caught in the maelstrom of meaninglessness and brokenness. We cannot shout at people or scream down upon them. No, they must feel that we are with them and that we are both broken sinners in need of God's grace. Yes, they must know that these are not just words to us, but that we mean what we say by what we do. May God give us this kind of heart and mind and hand. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, you have extended your mercy to us in Christ. Indeed, as the Bible says, you have placed your love upon us from all eternity. And in time, through your grace and through the ministry of your spirit, you have drawn us to yourself and we experience all the blessings that come with that. Father, since you have done that for us, 
May it be the conviction of our hearts and the desire of our hearts to share then that kind of love with which you have loved us with others, O God, not only here as brothers and sisters in Christ, but to those who are in need, who need the gospel, who need the good news of Jesus Christ, not just in concept and truth, but also, Lord, even in material ways, social ways, relational ways. God, show us as a body how to better do that so that in the end we may rejoice that we may see this church grow, not just numerically, but above all spiritually, O God. Tune our hearts to yourself above all and tune our hearts, O God, to the needs of those around us immediately in this community and then also beyond. And then one final thing, Father, as Tim brought out in his prayer Maybe, Lord, you have an opportunity for us in some place in this city where we might be able to do that more directly. If that is the case, Lord, please, we pray, open that door for us, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we are going to sing the song.